the nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast, a podcast that is all about wildlife. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm a naturalist by trade. And if you want to know more about me and my background, you can check out my first episode, Who is the Nagging Naturalist? My opinions are my own, and I do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute mentioned on my podcast. So for today's episode, I was actually going to save this for the end of the month, but then today is National Wildlife Rehabilitators Appreciation Day, March 10th, and it's also baby season is starting. And so if you, I don't remember if we actually mentioned it in the opossum episode, we might have, but in the first episode of this month, I spoke with Jess Anderson and we discussed, you know, wildlife rehabilitation, mostly centered around opossums. But right now is baby season. So in addition to opossums, a lot of other animals are being rescued right now as well. And so I actually invited Jess Anderson back on for another episode to discuss babies, basically. So this is a baby animal episode. We're not going to focus on one species. We're going to look at basically five commonly rescued species. So we're going to review opossums because they are very commonly rescued. We're going to do squirrels, and that's going to be this first part. I had to break this up into three because we went on for quite a while. This will be the shorter of the three episodes, too. The other two are very long. So this first one's opossums and squirrels. The next one is just birds. And then the last one is going to be uh, baby bunnies and deer, uh, young fawn. So we're going to go through these uh, animals and talk about what causes them to need to be rescued or why people might try to rescue them even though they don't need it. And also what people can do to prevent them from needing to be rescued. In some cases, there's nothing you can do about it and that's okay. Do what you can and make sure it gets to a rehabilitator if it needs it. But there are a lot of cases where people mistakenly cause the accidents or they think an animal needs to be rescued and it doesn't. So we're going to review all those things to try to help people make better decisions when it comes to wildlife rehabilitation. So let's go ahead and dive on into today's episode. All right. And so I'm welcoming back Jessica Anderson, who is the Rehabilitation Program Manager for the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center in Virginia. And today we are going to be talking about baby animals that are commonly brought into rehabilitation centers. So this is going to be different than what I normally do. Instead of focusing on natural history and then talking about the values and conservation, we're going to be covering the different types of babies that can get brought in what kinds of adaptations result in them ending up in rehabilitation centers and how people can change their behaviors to ensure that they're not causing these animals to need to come into the rehabilitation centers. But before we dive too much into that, I did want to talk about a story that was released from the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center about some illegally confiscated salamanders, native salamanders in particular, that came into the center and are thankfully going to hopefully be releasable soon uh, once they've gone through their rehabilitation. So Jess, did you want to <laughs> kind of guide us through this really interesting story? Because I think most people don't think about when they think about illegally confiscated wildlife, I'm sure most people think of things like tigers and exotics. I don't think they think about the fact that a lot of our native wildlife goes through this as well. Oh yeah. So it, it's kind of actually surprising the amount of like reptiles and amphibians that you know, same thing that you said, a lot of people, when I think of like, oh, wildlife trafficking, I think of 
monkeys. I think of tigers, um, you know, the real exotic animals like that. I don't really think about somebody wanting to come to Virginia or just the U.S. in general and take what we consider like common animals. But um, uh, apparently a person uh, illegally had uh, six salamanders, which in Virginia, um, you are allowed to have up to five non-threatened or endangered reptiles or amphibians without a permit, um, which is, you know, has issues in and of itself for that to be the, the law in Virginia. But um, so she obviously had six, so that all automatically makes it illegal, but she also had them for about a month. And so the biggest issue with Virginia is if you have any sort of reptiles or amphibians, regardless of how many, if you've had them and you don't have a permit for rehabilitation purposes, you have them for more than 30 days, that automatically makes them non-releasable. Or if you find a turtle on the side of the road, which we actually had this happen, a woman found a turtle, um, she was helping it across or she picked it up and it had a broken shell. And then as she was driving to go home, she found another turtle a couple miles down the road that didn't have a hurt shell, but she thought it was in a really bad place. So she put both of the turtles in the same box in her car. And then when she got home, she called us. And so she, she said, I have these two turtles, you know, what should I do with them? One's injured. And I was like, well, where are the turtles? She was like, oh, they're both in a box in my car. And I said, are they in the same box? And she said, yes. And I said, all right, well, I have some really bad news for you because now that we know that these two turtles came from two separate places and they've been combined, they could potentially spread diseases to each other. So if you released one of them or both of them, they could potentially make the rest of those populations wherever they live sick. So there's a lot of laws regarding reptiles and amphibians. And thankfully we were able to get permission from the state um, to release these salamanders the next day. So they actually, they've made it, they've been released, they've gone home. Um, so that was really uh, enjoyable for us because knowing that they were coming in after having been at least 30 days, we were already kind of prepared that it wasn't going to be a, a happy ending. But thankfully the, the state sort of made that exception, but normally that's not the case. Um, so it's definitely one of those things where you know, we've had issues where people are, are hoarding and taking box turtles, which people think are really common, but we've seen that their populations are in decline. So it's always kind of good to number one, know what laws you have in your state. Kind of, we touched a little bit about that on uh, with the opossums, but um, also understanding that when you take these animals out of the wild, when if they can't ever go back because of what you did, you're now taking these uh, potentially healthy, diverse, genetic um, adults out of that reproducing population. So you're actually taking diversity away from the wild population. So um, that can have, you know, issues and, and problems in and of itself. Yeah, and I know for sure in Maryland, it's been confusing. I, I find it's kind of a generational thing because laws can change between administrations. And some people are like, oh, well, when I was a kid, it was acceptable to, you know, collect box turtles or uh, diamondback terrapins and take them home and keep them as pets. And then like after a few years when you were tired of it, like we would just go set them back out in the wild. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of problems with that. There is nothing good about what you just said. The idea of going and taking an animal, especially things like box turtles, because box turtles are so particular. I guess I shouldn't dive too much into this because I'll actually be doing a box turtle episode before this, <laughs> but you know, they have, you know, they're very territorial. They live in a particular place. When you take them out of that space, it's disorienting. It can be harmful to them. And it's, at the end of the day, it just, there's so many issues that have stemmed from 
our poor practices of how we handle pets, things like the introduction of red-eared sliders everywhere to yeah. declines in native species like box turtles and diamondback terrapins in some places because of uh, pet trade. So for sure, it's one of those things where if you really want a reptile, <laughs> you don't need to go into the wild and collect it. And if you do find a hurt reptile, again, as with everything, as, as I keep hammering it away probably all month, call a rehabilitator before you take action, before you touch an animal. I mean, I don't mind some of the people who help animals across the road, but if you yeah, if your intent is, to, is that it's harmed and it needs help, you need to call a rehabilitator before you take action and not after you've done something because you, no matter, again, no matter how well-meaning you are, you can sometimes accidentally cause something bad to happen, like in this case where she caused the two turtles to be non-releasable, even though that obviously wasn't her intent. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she would have acted differently had she known at the time. So it's, yeah. yeah. All right, so we'll move into our primary subjects for today. And I guess we'll probably actually start with opossums because we have kind of talked about them a bit. And so anybody who has actually followed along this month knows a little bit about them, but we'll, we'll go back over them because even though we reviewed them, it is worth noting that, you know, of the types of opossums that come in, they come in for different reasons. Adults will usually come in because of injuries, such as like, like we had discussed, uh, playing dead and sometimes people not realizing that they're faking their death and, you know, getting hit by cars or attacked by pets and things like that. But babies are usually brought in for an entirely different reason. So we'll go ahead and talk about, I guess we'll start with why do babies sometimes end up abandoned by mom? So most often we see babies that have been, that are orphaned um, and possums are kind of one of our only true orphan babies that we get. So a lot of people might say, oh yeah, this squirrel fell out of a tree and mom didn't come back, it's orphaned. Well, is it really orphaned? Or is, you know, did mom try to come back and you took it in too soon? You know, anything like that. There's a lot of things that we can't really fully know for a lot of situations. For possums though, mom, you know, she does really well when they're in the pouch, but when she drops one, normally that's, that's normally it. You know, if, if a dog attacks a, a possum and she's got babies in her pouch, dogs have this sort of, they, they generally tend to grab an animal and shake it. That's sort of their, their MO, right? And so when they do that, obviously, if you've got babies in your little fanny pack on your pouch there, that's half open, uh, you know, babies go flying if that's the case. Now, if Not the, dog the was- baby fanny pack. <laughs> If you ever want to be a possum for Halloween, it's an, it's, you know, it's a needed addition. I love it. <laughs> so when the dogs shake them, the babies go flying. Um, and if the dog lets go of mom, and obviously whoever owns the dog, you know, doesn't get her or contain her and she's able to run off, that's her priority. And that's going to be the case for most wild mothers. If their life is in danger, they're not going to risk their lives for the most part for their babies, because if they die in the process, then all of their babies die. But if she can escape and live and some of her babies die, she can live and have more babies later. So it's really about the success and, and reproduction. Obviously, I can't say what those those parents and those adults are feeling, but we can see by their behavior that they really have priorities in, in what they're doing. So if you have a baby possum that falls out, dog shakes the possum, mom runs off, and the baby falls out, if they are smaller than uh, seven inches from nose to the base of the tail, so not including the tail, if they are less than seven inches in length, then they need to be taken to a rehabber because they're too young to be on their own. 
um, sometimes so when they're about seven inches or bigger, that's when they're going to be all huddled on mom's back. And obviously you only have so much space for them. And as they get bigger, you know, the school bus can't carry as many and they just kind of naturally start falling off at that point. So if you find a baby that's seven inches or larger, most likely that baby just naturally fell off. You know, they've started eating solid foods on their own. They're sniffing around. They can thermoregulate. They're not on formula any longer in this case, mom's milk. Um, so they're good to go. But a lot of people will find baby possums and think, oh, well, this baby's here and like squirrels or bunnies, maybe I'll just leave them out and mom will come back for them. But that's generally not the case unless mom is literally under the bush next to the baby. They'll, they'll make like these um, sort of clicking noises to each other where they can kind of uh, click back and forth and the baby will run towards mom. But if mom has taken off and you have this tiny little neonate baby, that baby can't crawl, that baby can't run. And she's she's already made her decision. She's like, sorry, Julio, like this is not working out. Peace. So I always think possums are Spanish because they, they originated from South America. So that's, I don't believe that. That's fair. <laughs> I think they're bilingual. <laughs> but um, so... So that whenever you find a baby possum, if it's smaller than that size, it always needs help at that point. Um, I've had people who said, yep, I found this baby possum on my porch all by itself. I put it in a bin and we left it for two days, hoping mom will come back. And I was like, oh my God, like that's, she's not going to come back. She's gone. That's not going to happen. Maybe just starved for two days. Yes. And this was even a more fun uh, adventure because the woman then started telling me about all the stuff that she's been doing since. And she was like, yeah, I just put a little bit of water under his skin. And I was like, ma'am, do you, are you a medical professional? And she was like, no, no, no. Like I have, you know, a little needle and just some water. And I'm like, oh, so you just like put like tap water under this animal skin. And P.S. If, if anybody is listening and they don't, they aren't aware, number one, don't ever just like slice open an animal and like put water under its skin. That's not appropriate. Um, if you're not a medical professional, do not try to perform any sort of medical treatments um, along those lines. I don't care if you've raised kittens for the last 30 years. It's not the same thing. Um, please get those animals to a professional. It's always oh in their so yeah, possums for the most part, the only thing with possums too, we get them as well. When mom is hit by a car, they tend to, they tend to lead with their face into the, the cars. So when mom is hit by a car and she dies, their lower half of their body normally is pretty untouched. So if they have babies in the pouch, those babies can still be alive. Um, and I always like to, one of my favorite spring mantras is check your possums before you wreck your possums because they could have babies. <laughs> Um, so we tell people that if they're driving, they see a dead possum on the side of the road and it's between, you know, March right now and September, August, and you feel comfortable doing so pull over, check it out, see if there are babies. And if they're still alive, uh, and they're over a certain size, they're raisable. We can save those guys. Um, the only issue is if you have tiny little pink jelly beans, you know, they literally look like the size of little, little jelly beans. They're like, they haven't baked long enough, you know, they're still forming. Those we can't save because like we discussed in the other uh, episode, if you haven't listened yet, uh, their mouths fuse shut. So if you pull them off at a certain age, their mouths will actually continue closing because that's how they latch themselves onto the nipple. So then we can't feed them. And obviously the longer babies can be with mom, the more antibodies and the more beneficial um, nutrients and stuff they get from her. So when you have 
have these very tiny, very pink babies, their likelihoods of surviving and surviving to, to good health is very low. So the older they are, awesome, great. Um, we do try when we can, uh, but then also just know that even if they are very tiny, sometimes again, it's in their best interest so that they're not sitting on the baking side of the road, they're not starving to death, they're not dying of exposure, things like that. Um, you know, a rehabilitator would be able to help you out with that. Okay, well, as far as preventing babies from coming in, it sounds like one of the most obvious ones is making sure you have full control of uh, your dog, for sure. And I don't, I mean, this is probably gonna come up a couple of times in this episode, but you know, I'm not gonna try to go on any strong tangent, but are cats ever an issue for possum babies? Yes. So, I mean, we've definitely gotten cat attacked babies, but normally it's after something has already happened to mom. So maybe another predator has, you know, gotten a hold of her and babies have fallen out or she got spooked by something and one fell off when it was too small and then a cat finds it. Um, so obviously that baby would need help regardless, but if a cat has it in its mouth, that makes the prognosis for that baby, you know, 200 times worse than if it had just been an orphan. Um, so obviously having your cats outdoors um, or having, you know, community cats in an area is an inherently dangerous thing for any wildlife that they end up picking up. Um, and yes, <laughs> you're right. It, that's pretty clear for almost all babies that we, we deal with um, across the board. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to try my best not to make this an entire episode about outdoor cats, even though I know that we could, but <laughs> what is that statistic that typically people who do have let their cats outside, if their cat brings home a kill, people are usually seeing, what is it only about, it's like less than 20%. I think it's I think like it's 15 to 18%. It's 18. I always 18. want to say 16, but I've looked it up now so many times to correct myself. It's yeah, it's 18% that they found in a study in South Africa where cats were only bringing home 18% of what they were catching. So anytime somebody tells you, oh, you know, my cat only, you know, he only brings home a couple of mice every year or a couple of birds every, you know, couple of months, that's only 18% of what you're seeing. So multiply that by five and that's the, that's probably closer to the average of what your animal is actually doing. So that's always something good to keep in mind. You're right. Outdoor cats is a whole other tangent that whew, you could you could have an entire episode or more than on just that. So yeah, so having control of your pets, making sure that your pets are not free roaming or outside unchaperoned, is a huge way to help wildlife, regardless of whether you own a dog or a cat. Obviously, the conversation tends to center around cats because people do tend to let their cats free roam more than people let their dogs free roam. But it's worth noting that in both cases, regardless of which one you have you need to make sure you have full control of your animals so that they are not unintentionally causing harm to wildlife. For sure. Uh, as far as, I, I mean, we kind of touched on with the possums, like, you know, driving safely making sure that you're not hitting mom while she's crossing the street, making sure you have your lights on at night or in poor visible weather, especially during times, like you mentioned, the spring times and things like that, when animals are um, moving around a little bit more because uh, resources are becoming abundant and available and so they're starting to move around more and trying to take advantage of these resources and there's definitely a big boom in the spring to early summer of wildlife moving across you know sidewalks and streets and things like that so for sure uh, just 
being extra cautious, especially during that springtime boom. Obviously, possums, as you mentioned, can have several litters in a year. So like you said, it, theirs extends all the way into September. But typically, I think I think the most action for most of these animals that we're going to see is just that extra bit of caution in the springtime. So right now we're in March. Obviously, this is the very like beginning. And for some animals, it probably started back in February. But this is kind of like your early warning of you need to start thinking about how your actions are potentially going to impact the animals that we're going to discuss. Now, you brought up squirrels uh, initially, and squirrels are an interesting one for me because I personally have never actually seen an abandoned squirrel. Of all the different kinds of abandoned wildlife or injured wildlife I've seen, I actually would expect to, especially living in a city that where people do have like outdoor roaming cats, I'm actually kind of in shock that I've never had to rescue a squirrel. But at the same time, there might be circumstances that have just precluded me from seeing it. Like the fact that we do have paid staff in the city that clean up things like dead animals. And in fact, when we do bird strike surveys and things like that during the migratory seasons in the spring and the fall, they have to do it as early as like four and 5 a.m. to get out there before the street sweepers come out and the people who clean up the city because at 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. they start going out and sweeping things up, including the bird corpses, so that people, of course, aren't walking to work and seeing dead birds everywhere. But the problem is, is people aren't seeing dead birds everywhere. Yeah. So I'm not sure if the reason why I've never had to rescue a squirrel is because we have people who are paid in the city to basically kind of make sure that people aren't seeing the impact the city has on it. So I am a little curious to hear about how squirrels end up in, especially baby squirrels end up in rehab because it's something I've yet to see. And of course, being in a city, we have a lot of gray squirrels here. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, squirrels are, are, an interesting one. Again, cats are a big one because if a baby falls, even you can re-nest them. Um, you can try to reunite them with mom if mom's around, but obviously if the baby is injured or ill, um, and this is also across the board for everybody, if you find an animal and it's very obviously injured, it's got wounds, it's very obviously ill, you know, it has any discharge out of its eyes or nose or is um, having trouble breathing, uh, they're cold to the touch, um, or have been in a cat's mouth. Those are all across the board right away, you need to get those to a professional. Um, you can't reunite an injured squirrel, you can't reunite a sick squirrel, and you can't reunite a squirrel that's been attacked by a cat because they generally die quickly after that. Um, but for squirrels, for the most part, we get a lot of those guys in after big storms um, because squirrels like to make poor choices and put their babies in these giant balls of leaves that have no structural support whatsoever. They're like, yeah, this is a great idea. I'll just tuck my vulnerable children in this poorly made tree house out of leaves. So that'll go, that'll go well. Um, and then you get these big spring storms and rain and wind and it blows them out of the tree. But as long as the babies are, you know, they're alert, they're not injured, um, they otherwise look fine. If the tree's still there and mom's still around, she wants them back. Um, and people are always so like ecstatic when we tell them, you know, you can put them in a cardboard box or any sort of container that is open top so mom can get into it. You put some blankets in, maybe a, a hot water bottle um, in the blankets near them to keep them warm depending on the weather. Um, you want to put them out during the daytime because squirrels are diurnal mammals. So if it's nighttime, mom's asleep. She's not going to be looking for those squirrels. So there's no reason to leave them outside. You can put them somewhere warm, dark, and quiet on a heating pad. Um, just keep them warm overnight. But we normally recommend as long as they're not injured to try and re-nest them and reunite them 
for at least six to eight hours. And you can always check on them every two to three hours, just to make sure that they haven't gone downhill. <clears throat> but that's going to give mom plenty of time to look because she's going to go up to that nest and realize all of her babies are gone. And she's going to go, shit, I should have made this with better structural support because I'm dumb. <laughs> so she's going to go looking around for them and she's going to come down. And if you just have them in a box or some sort of container that keeps them warm at the base of that tree, you can watch her. She'll come down grab each one one at a time and most animals most mothers have multiple nests and multiple dens so even if one nest is destroyed and people get upset or if they cut a tree down and they're like well the tree's gone she's got two or three other places because she knows that she's made mistakes that she's not an architect so she's got plan b and c waiting in the wings just in case and they'll move their babies around too as they get bigger so you might even find if mom is transporting her babies and she gets spooked by a car or a dog or a cat, what have you, or a hawk, um, she will drop her baby and run. So a lot of times we'll find babies in the middle of the, in the middle of the road on a sidewalk. Um, so we tell them again, just as long as they're healthy and they look okay, put them in a box, put them at the closest tree that they were near or pick a side of the road if they're in the middle and mom's going to come back looking for them. But if, you know, it's been at least 12 hours, mom hasn't come back, you haven't seen her, all the babies are still there, then at that point, generally 12 to 24 hours, that's going to be a time that you need to start looking around and, and calling people. I always like to tell people to, to call your rehabbers anyway, even if you're trying to reunite, just in case if it doesn't go well, you already have their contact information, you already they already know to expect a phone call from you because if any of you guys have tried to contact rehabbers in the midst of spring baby season, you'll know you're going to get a lot of voicemails and it might take some time for them to call you back. So right when it happens is a good time to maybe just call, let them know you're doing this. They might need to expect you. Um, and hopefully by the time they've called you back, it's already been successfully reunited. I think those are really like, we'll get babies that fall. And if it's really cold out, overnight like right now um, we're still only barely getting into the the high 50s during the day but it's below freezing at night so if you have a baby that falls in the middle of the night and has been out and you know dealt with exposure and stuff like that is dehydrated um, those are all reasons those babies could come in if they're covered in ant bites or fly eggs if people aren't familiar fly eggs basically look like little tiny clumps of rice brains like stuck to an animal's skin or fur if they have fly eggs on them they they're they need to come in immediately because obviously mom has not come back for them or tried to care for them and that takes a little bit of time for flies to land on something to to lay those eggs so for squirrels yeah it's primarily falling out of nests people trimming trees if you're thinking about trimming your trees don't do it right now because you've got babies somewhere in there primarily wait till winter that's a good time to trim trees because you don't have any babies there um, but if again if you trim trees and you've got a nest you can reunite them as long as they're healthy. Cat attacks, dog attacks occasionally. And obviously if you find any animals where a natural predator situation is happening, say you see a hawk try to take off with a, a squirrel and it drops it because you spooked it. We always try to give the, the predator, you know, a little bit of time to come back, but obviously not so long that that animal is gonna be suffering for an indefinite amount of time. You know, if they don't come back within a couple of minutes, they're gone. You can go and, and grab that animal, but yeah, because that hawk's feeding children too. I mean, exactly. if you if you intentionally try to prevent predation, you are just harming the predator. 
which I'm not saying this against squirrels and I have nothing against squirrels. And I hope my friend Stephanie doesn't listen to this and think that I have anything (laughs) against squirrels, but they're prey animals. They exist primarily. I mean, they have other ecosystem roles, but one of their biggest roles is being prey. And that hawk has every right to eat it if it successfully captures it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yep. And as you mentioned already, just, you know, if, if, if you're taking, like, we do the same thing. We wait till late fall uh, to do any tree trimming, late fall, early winter, primarily because at that point, all the sap is out of the tree. I know this is a wildlife podcast, but just so you know, sap is essentially the blood of trees. And when you trim them while the sap is still flowing, you're actually taking some of the sap away. Once the sap has gone down into the roots of the tree and you trim it when all the sap is stored, you're not removing sap from that tree. I think it's, this is what I've been told. Again, I'm, I'm, I volunteer in horticulture. I don't, I'm not an actual horticulturist, but I've, I've always been told it's best to wait for um, late fall and early winter when the sap goes down into the base of the tree to trim the tree because you're gonna make, you're gonna take away the tree blood basically. <laughs> And one other thing, uh, I guess, before we move on to any other species, and again, this applies across the board for everyone. Um, Another big issue that we have, not just with baby squirrels, but babies in general, is when we get animals that people have held on to for too long, or, you know, they found a baby squirrel yesterday, but they've been feeding it all night, and now the baby squirrel has aspirated, uh, which for anybody, if they don't know what that means, that means that the animal inhaled while they were eating and got formula into their lungs. Um, and now we have to worry about not just, you know, we can't just reunite and put this baby out. Now this baby has potentially aspiration pneumonia. Um, you know, this baby now potentially has diarrhea and bloat because what are they feeding this animal? Um, and most, most commercial things that if you're going to go out to a pet store and like buy kitten formula or puppy formula, that is not appropriate for wildlife. That is not, you know, that's appropriate for kitten and puppies, but most rehabilitators actually order, we have very specific formulas that we order per species. So that it's formulated protein and fat perfectly, or at least as close as we can make them to what their mom's milk is. So even just having that baby, you know, maybe you found it on a Friday and you're like, oh, wait till Monday. Like I want my kids to have an experience raising squirrels. Like I want them to to enjoy nature. Well, do you want your kids to like enjoy the experience of killing an animal? Because most parents don't. Um, Most parents get very upset when they bring us animals and they ask us how they're going to do in front of their children. And we say, we have to euthanize this animal because it's so poor. It's so bad. Um, It's so emaciated at this point. So again, as soon as you find an animal, uh, if you can try to reunite and re-nest, awesome, great, go for it. Um, but if you have any concerns, any questions, or it fails and it doesn't go well, do not try to feed that animal. Warm, dark, and quiet is the best option until you can get in contact with a professional and they can kind of go through what what the next best steps for that animal is. Yep. I, I'm pretty sure I said it for the possum episode and I'll say it again. Good intentions without context or knowledge can still hurt things. Like it's... Ugh. I feel like I'm, I'm a broken record with some of these things. There's nothing wrong with wanting to help animals. There's nothing yeah. wrong with wanting to connect with animals, but there are safe and ethical ways to do it. And there are ways to not do it. And obviously we're going to discuss this a couple of times, but I learned this the hard way too. I was absolutely that child that tried to bring home wildlife and didn't know how to raise it. Thankfully, there weren't too many cases gone awry. 
but there were definitely some where I learned the hard way that you can't just, your love isn't going to sustain that animal. Like no matter how much you want to love and care for it, it's not, that's not enough to protect an animal. That's not enough to keep an animal safe. And sometimes we just have to accept that no matter how much we want to do something, we might end up doing more harm than good because if it's about us and our experience and not about the animal, then that's going to do more harm to the animal potentially is when you put your desires before the safety of the animal. So for sure, if you, (laughs) if you find baby animals, you know, call your rehabilitator, get guidance, make sure you don't fall into any of these faux pas. I've definitely learned never to feed a wild animal. If I hope to, you know, release it. I, I do this with birds all the time with window strikes, put them in a bag. I don't put seeds or anything in there. Even if I know that they're seed eaters, I don't go out and collect earthworms and put it in the bag. I'm just hoping that bird doesn't die of like it's rib piercing its lung while it's in the bag. Basically, I just have to give it that few hours. And if it's still wiggling around in the bag, I release it and hope for the best. If not, I usually have to dispose of a bird or take it to a rehabilitator if it's still alive. But yeah, stop feeding wildlife. (laughs) Always a pretty clear point across the board for the most part. So very much so. Yeah. All right. And we're going to pause it right there for this episode. In the second part, we will be reviewing baby birds for uh, rescue and rehabilitation and what people can do for them. For today's episode, there isn't really anybody cited. It's basically just all Jess Anderson's know-how and my few experiences. So those are who were cited. It's just Jess's brain and a little bit of mine. <laughs> if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com, and you can check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. On social media, you can find Jess Anderson on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, she is Jess in the Wild, J-E-S-S-I-N-T-H-E-W-I-L-D. And then on Twitter, she's college underscore fit. So C-O-L-L-E-G-E underscore F-I-I-T. That's fit with two I's. So that's where you can follow her. You can also find her organization, uh, the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under all the same names. And I believe the Twitter handle is BRWildlifeCTR. For me, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram under The Nagging Naturalist. And on Twitter, my handle is at nag underscore naturalist. And you can also leave me reviews on Apple Podcasts and podchaser.com to help support the podcast. If you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, you can check out these other wildlife podcasts. All Creatures Podcast, CritterCast, The Wildlife, Just the Zoo of Us, Animals to the Max, Varmints, Amazing Wildlife Podcast, The Casual Birder, What Are You Podcast, The Songbirding Podcast, The Cicada Lounge, Life Death Taxonomy, and Strange Animals Podcast, which are all uh, safe for work podcasts. There is also Keeper Chat, which is a fantastic podcast, but it is most definitely not safe for work. There's also some other really great science-based podcasts that focus on either specific kinds of science or science in general. And sometimes there's even some overlap with wildlife. There's Petri Dish, Planthropology, Bald Scientist, Dear Grad Student, Better Than Human, More Than Just a Scientist, Curiosity Cake, Mad Scientist, 
what are you going to do with that? Papa PhD, Breaking Math, Curiosity Killed the Rat, The Roots of the Science, That's What I Call Science, and The Scientist Podcast, and it's scientist with two T's at the end. Some of these podcasts are and aren't safe for work. I'm looking at Petri dish, but be sure to check if that's of concern. I'm also on a non-wildlife podcast called The Legend of Portal Cast, which discusses the world of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Stick around. Uh, I, th- I plan on releasing part two and part three tomorrow and the day after. So Thursday, the 11th, tomorrow should be part two with the birds. And then Friday, the 12th, will be the baby bunnies and the deer. So stick around for that, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.